According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in Luke 24. (coughs) Excuse me, Luke 24. I think I'm through most of the... uh, of the coughing. There may be some last remnants here this morning. Luke 24, verses um, 44 through 49, which is unfortunately attached to Matthew 28 and Mark 16 when uh, folks are harmonizing their gospels and uh, placing things all together. And uh, I think it's best to not connect Luke 24 with Matthew 28 or Mark 16, at least with respect to the Great Commission episode. The Great Commission is on a mountaintop in Galilee, whereas this uh, message, the Great Cognition, is uh, in Jerusalem. That everything in the context of Luke 24 has a Jerusalem setting. When they complete this Bible conference, he's going to lead them out as far as Bethany. That comes from a Jerusalem starting point. And then uh, after he ascends, they are going to go back into the city and wait for 10 days. He even instructs them to wait in the city. Verse 49, he says, stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And so the setting for this episode, uh, what I'm calling the great cognition, it's point four in our outline, the the great cognition is uh, a way to help us separate it from the great commission, all right? The great commission is Matthew 28. And the Great Commission is the make-disciple imperative, right? The Great Cognition comes here. We understand, if you're cognizant of what I'm talking about, that uh, cognition refers to understanding communication. And we have that here in verse 45, where he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. In a beautiful uh, preview of what the church age is all about, of what happens when the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth, even the deep things of God. Here we have Jesus Christ personally doing it so that they have a frame of reference to understand Old Testament doctrine and the new mystery of the church uh, about to be unveiled. So we're looking at the mountaintop setting. Not only is the setting different, the message is different. In the Great Commission, there's an imperative to make disciples. Remember that, Matheituo? To make disciples. Nothing in this passage says make disciples. Uh, nothing in this passage approaches make disciples, other than it says you uh, are witnesses of these things. If uh, the, the problem comes in when people confuse the Great Commission and think the Great Commission is being a witness. The Great Commission is not being a witness. The Great Commission is making disciples. That's huge. Being a witness of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ is a prime function of the apostles in the early church. It's also a prime function of tribulational evangelists prior to the second advent, that they have to testify that the Messiah they are looking for is the Messiah they crucified, the Messiah who died, the Messiah who was buried, the Messiah who rose again, the Messiah who ascended and is seated at the Father's right hand. So bearing witness to the death and resurrection of Messiah was an apostolic activity in the early church, and it will be a tribulational evangelist activity uh, leading up to Second Advent, preparing the way for Second Advent. 
It has an absolute vital function as witnesses of the resurrection that we understand what we're dealing with here in this Luke 24 message. All right? The martyrdom expectation of the apostles and tribulational evangelists, both under the martyrdom expectation of witnessing the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. So, um, as we work our way through these points, Jesus provided a summary review of his entire ministry and placed each message in a specific Old Testament prophetic context, going back to Old Testament prophecy and stipulating where they are fulfilled and unfulfilled. That's huge. Placing everything in the Old Testament prophetic context. All things. All things. That's comprehensive. Written about me. That's prophetic. About me. Messianic writings. In the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms. That's the totality of what today we call the Old Testament. All right? The entire Hebrew canon right there defined by Luke in Luke, or by Jesus in Luke 22, uh, 24, 44. Must be fulfilled. Must be. Here's the have-tos that God is under. Remember we taught the difference between the want-tos and the have-tos. God himself has want-tos that are never realized, but God himself has have-tos that he has to fulfill. And he he creates his own have-tos when he makes promises. And God, when he makes a promise, is then obligating himself. He has to be true to himself. He cannot deny himself. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. These are the have-tos of God. And uh, some folks don't like God being under have-tos as if somehow it's it's an attack of his sovereignty or whatnot. Uh, To me, God has to be true to himself. He has to uphold his own integrity. He has to fulfill everything that he says he would. That's not an attack on sovereignty. I think it's a magnification of sovereignty. All right, so must be fulfilled. And so when he departs to heaven and is seated at the Father's right hand with a whole lot of unfulfilled prophecies, how should we take that? How should we take it when uh, you understand the ratio of fulfilled versus unfulfilled? First advent versus second advent is actually much more still to come. Much more unfulfilled that is waiting second advent compared to that which was fulfilled in first advent. Okay, So how do we take it? We take it as must be fulfilled. If not now, when? Okay, Second Advent, we understand that. And uh, must be fulfilled tells us that replacement theology is, is wrong. That uh, we can't just allegorize it or write it off or spiritualize it and say, well, yeah, but okay, it wasn't fulfilled for Israel, but it will be fulfilled for the church. Or, well, okay, it's not for Israel, but... Doug, are the front doors open? All right. There we go. So this is what we're talking about. Must be fulfilled. And this is how we have our hermeneutic. This is what gives us our literal hermeneutic. This is what gives us our um, approach to the Scriptures and and being noble-minded and searching the Scriptures and seeing if these things are so. All right. Now, how long did it take him to review everything? These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. To review every sermon he ever preached? To review every message that he had for Israel? I suspect it took several nights, several days. I suspect it was a, a conference of Bible teaching, likely requiring several teaching sessions over several days to accomplish. Good thing he opened their mind to take it all in 
We, uh, point B, we looked at the verb dia nuego for opening their minds, and we're thankful for that. We ask the Lord to do that for each one of us when we come to Bible class, while we open in prayer with every Bible class. Understanding the Scriptures must be comprehensive, and understanding the Scriptures must rightly divide. <coughs> must rightly divide. In other words, if, if you're just cherry-picking a verse here and there, finding something that sounds good, like, oh, I don't know, a a Jabez prayer or something, and then you're going you're gonna to make a, an entire empire out of one stray random verse? What are you doing? All right, it's got to be comprehensive, systematic. The law of Moses, the writings, the prophets must be fulfilled, showing the comprehensive fulfillment with Scripture, agreeing with Scripture. Here a little, there a little, okay? It cannot just be haphazard or random, because I can find a random verse anywhere to say whatever I want it to say. And, uh, you know, uh, I can build a compound and marry a bunch of women and stock up a bunch of guns and become a cult leader, okay? Anyway, understanding the Scripture must be comprehensive and you must rightly divide the word of truth. It says, be diligent to present yourself approved before God, a workman needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's where the Awana name comes from, even. The, all workers are not ashamed is what A-W-A-N-A stands for. So, <clears throat> anyway, understanding the Scriptures. We have to rightly divide it. And this passage and other passages, like Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 61 we talked about, demonstrates the nature of our hermeneutic on a fulfilled versus unfulfilled basis. It's a prime means at our disposal to say, wait a minute, was this fulfilled or is it still unfulfilled? Okay? We don't dismiss it. We don't allegorize it. We don't write it off. We don't, we don't try to pretend it's not there. We handle it like we handle every other promise God ever made. The scriptures cannot be broken, we're told. John 10, 35. Now, where we left off, what we have to get to today, really make sure we're solid on this. This death and resurrection message. This death and resurrection message. Thus it is written. So in, we're in the content of what he's describing, on a fulfilled versus unfulfilled basis, He's particularly highlighting that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. That Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. And we have, according to the Scriptures in 1 Corinthians 15, in fact, we've got quite a parallel here. This gospel content is quite simple and quite similar to 1 Corinthians 15. That Jesus died according to the Scripture, that He was buried, that He rose again, according to the scriptures and those according to the scripture statements are connected to death and resurrection all right that middle thing about being buried in first corinthians 15 does not have a according to the scripture attached to it the way that death does and resurrection does all right likewise here in luke 24 um, christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day this was according to the scriptures. And we have Old Testament scriptures that speak of his suffering, that speak of his death. You've got Isaiah 53, you've got Psalm 52, uh, 22. You've got all of these passages about his suffering, about his death, and about his resurrection. You've got an entire um, book of the Bible like Jonah, where you have uh, Jonah coming back on the third day. All right? Different applications there. You've got the Psalms where the Holy One would not undergo decay. Okay, other promises of the resurrection. <coughs> and he's opening their minds to understand that. Now, we want to understand 
is what happens when he gives them the good news in verse 46. <coughs> and I think it is good news. It's, although euangelia is not in the verse, it's not called a gospel, but it is the content of the fulfilled scriptures. Christ suffered and Christ rose again on the third day. And it's what we often use in our good news proclamations. Okay? But he takes it in a direction that we don't often think about. And this is the preaching of repentance to all the nations. So verse 47. And that. And that. Well, what's the and that about? Well, take it back to 46. Thus it is written. Okay? So it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. And it is written that... You see the connection there? It is written that. So we have, a, we have a subject, a comprehensive subject, that is repentance, that goes back to an Old Testament foundation. And this is in addition to a subject that is death and resurrection of the Messiah. Okay? Please understand this. It is fulfilled scriptures. It is written that. Death and resurrection of the Messiah. It is written that repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All right? Two separate realities. Both written, both fulfilled. We want to understand, well, what is this repentance for the forgiveness of sin? Is it the same thing as verse 46? Is it synonymous? Or is it a different message? Is it a different context? Is it a different application? See, the problem is, is people blend the two. I think totally missing the and that in verse 47. Missing the and that. It is written that. And it is written that. And trying to say, well, it's all the same thing. Wait a minute. And the reason why, again, they're trying to shove this into the Great Commission. They're trying to say that the Great Commission is all about being a witness. When the Great Commission is about making disciples. Matthew 28 doesn't use witness anywhere. Luke 24 doesn't use make disciples anywhere. Interestingly enough, verse 47 is a prophecy that is rather impersonal. He says, And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. But verse 47 never says who's doing that. By whom? In verse 47, we would ask. By whom? Well, in verse 48, we're told you are martyr, uh, martyra, uh, witnesses, right? Martyreo, uh, marturion. You are witnesses of these things. But are you disciples the apostles are they the ones that are expected to beginning from jerusalem to reach every single nation doesn't say that in verse 47 it doesn't say you guys are going global it says it will happen that's why we talk about not only the apostolic witness but the tribulation witness what happens before second advent what happens during the great tribulation when 144,000 jewish evangelists are covering the globe what are they preaching? 
What are they preaching before second advent of Jesus Christ? They're preaching repentance. And you're going to see that. All right. The passion and resurrection of Christ gives a new significance to the proclamation of repentance. The passion and resurrection of the Christ gives a new significance to the proclamation of repentance. We touched on it last week. I want to reinforce it today and make sure we're solid before we walk out. <clears throat> the proclamation of repentance. Standing on a street corner and shouting, Repent! All right? Repent. Is that what we're called to do? Put a sandwich board sign on and walk around and threaten this world that the end of the world is near? Repent. Okay? Not our role. We weren't commissioned and summoned as prophets to the nations. We are ambassadors representing God and his kingdom. Let's understand the sequence on this now. It's a new significance. It's, it's not a new message, however. This was the whole ministry of John the Baptist, was repent. Matthew chapter 3, verses 2 and 7, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All of Jerusalem was coming to him to be baptized as they confessed their sins. They were being baptized for the forgiveness of sins. This is repent for the forgiveness of sins. It's the same thing. It's the same thing prophesied that will happen. It's the same thing that had happened by John the Baptist. This national repentance is necessary for Israel's entrance into the kingdom. He was the herald. He was the forerunner. He was preparing Israel for the coming of their king. Look at these again, Matthew chapter 3. Because to me, this is so critical. I don't want any of my people out there trying to use repent as an uh, evangelism tool. Okay? Repent is given to believers, not unbelievers. If you're giving the gospel to an unbeliever that needs eternal life, you're telling them to believe, not repent. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So Matthew chapter 3, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So he's preparing the way for the coming of Yahweh into his kingdom. In verse 5, all Jer- Jerusalem was going out to him, all Judea and the district around Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. This is not church age water baptism. This is not a church age gospel message to uh, b- bring an unbeliever to faith in Christ. Notice when the unbelievers do come out, to join in the, the party and have some fun and whatever they were doing. Everybody wants to jump on board if there's a, a big movement going on, right? He calls them a brood of vipers and says, this isn't for you. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Was I talking to you? No, I'm not talking to you. You brood of vipers. The repent message is not for unbelievers. The repent message is for believers that are not abiding in Christ and bearing fruit. For believers that are not spiritually focused. For believers that are uh, 
stony ground or thorny ground, the believers that are not fixing their minds on spiritual things. It's believers that are being prepared for the coming kingdom. So when he saw many, verse 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? If you are the, the serpent's brood, you're not the Heavenly Father's child yet, you don't need the repent imperative, you need to get saved. <coughs> All right. Repentance. Same thing in Revelation 1, 2, and 3. Repentance. Far more targeted to believers. The pastor of Ephesus had to repent or he was going to lose his lampstand. Jesus and his disciples likewise preached this early message of the kingdom. And early, in Matthew 4, 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He had the same message. It is a message of a pending kingdom reality on the earth. That's why it's appropriate for Jesus and John the Baptist here. It's why it's appropriate for the early church after Pentecost. All right? I think up until the destruction of Jerusalem, was there an opportunity for Israel to repent? To avoid the destruction? Not appropriate today. The kingdom is not imminent in terms of its manifestation. Judgment is. All right. When we preach the kingdom today, we are as ambassadors bringing people out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, but it's a heavenly kingdom, it's a spiritual reality. After the rapture of the church then, <laughs> once you start getting Jews and Gentiles saved again in, in the post-rapture era, then will it be appropriate once again? Absolutely be appropriate once again. The 144,000, the ministry of Elijah, the two witnesses of Revelation 11, you bet repent will be a powerful message. And it's going to be a powerful message for believers. For believers. To not be going after the course of this age. Remember, it's going to be like the days of Noah. It's all about eating and drinking. It's all about temporal life. And that hard-hitting repent message says, no, the kingdom is coming. And think about the new significance of the fact that it's not the Messiah, the humble Messiah born in a manger that's coming this time. It's the Messiah who died and rose again. And when Messiah comes again, he's going to come to conquer. You see why repentance has a much more dire significance now? That's why the death and resurrection of the Messiah has a whole new significance for the repentance proclamation. Likewise, Peter's first sermon on Pentecost was repentance for believers, Old Testament believers that need to be brought into the church, Old Testament believers that rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They need to repent, change their thinking. Jesus is the Messiah. He's now the Messiah who died and rose again. It's a whole new significance to the repent message. Acts 2.38. His second sermon, Acts 3.19. Likewise, repent, targeting believers. Old Testament believers need to change their thinking about the Christ they crucified. His defense before the Sanhedrin, Acts chapter 5, again, repent. There's actually a glimmer of, 
of uh, indications that maybe Gamaliel there's got some divine viewpoint. He needs to change his thinking on who the person of Jesus Christ is. And these final repentance messages are going to get more severe because they're going to be hearing them from Gentile languages. Jewish people are going to start hearing the wonderful works of God in Gentile languages, stammering lips and babbling tongues. And they're going to say, what in the world's going on? It's their final warning that they're about to stumble and be broken. The destruction of their city puts an end to that. Repentance messages. Repentance messages. <clears throat> now, there will be a future national repentance. Israel will have a future national repentance as is necessary for the arrival of the kingdom and their entrance into it. Because they rejected their king in first advent. Because they rejected their king in first advent. They are undergoing what Romans 9, 10, 11 talk about as a partial hardening of Israel has taken place until such time as the fullness of the Gentiles is complete. The entire stewardship of the church that you and I operate in is the time of Israel's partial hardening. It's the time where they are set aside, not forsaken, not abandoned, not replaced, set aside into a partial hardening, but only for a finite duration until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And then he resumes his plan with Israel. He cannot lie to Israel. The scriptures must be fulfilled. And if they weren't fulfilled in first advent, they will be fulfilled in second advent because the scriptures must be fulfilled. So Zechariah chapter 12, let's look at this. Zechariah chapter 12. See, Zechariah, this is the passage the disciples couldn't handle on the night of the crucifixion. Jesus is trying to teach them out of Zechariah. They didn't want to hear any of it. Zechariah was all about the sheep being scattered and the shepherd being rejected. And they said, no, Lord, this should never happen to you. <laughs> Jesus says, what are you talking about? I'm teaching the Bible. The Bible says it's going to happen. You realize the depth of their rebellion that night? They were, they were defying Scripture, saying, nope, we're going to keep it from happening. And they were calling him a liar because he was telling them what was going to happen. All right. Zechariah 12, verses 10 through 14. <clears throat> now in this, it's interesting, you've got a lot of wrath that leads up to this. Um, in these chapters leading up here, starting in chapter 11, there's a doomed flock that Zechariah has to shepherd. And uh, here's where he's uh, breaking up his staff and He's being told about 30 shekels of silver. There's so much here in Zechariah 11 that we see in the death of Christ. And then you get into chapter 12 and you've got an attack on Jerusalem. And um, <clears throat> you've got um, different things there. Let's see. Without reading all of chapter 12, you'll just note in verse 3, it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. It is a global war against Israel, against Jerusalem. 
in that day, declares the Lord. And then starts describing how he's going to be at work in this. In that day, verse 9. See, verse 8 says, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. Can you imagine? You have an invalid, some feeble person. But in that day, they're going to be like David storming Goliath. Just going forth into battle with nothing but faith. What a delight that's going to be. And I think of, you know, of course my dad's a believer. He's a church age saint. He won't be there in the tribulation. But somebody like my dad, okay, who's racked with whatever, rheumatoid arthritis and scootering around and whatever, a guy like that is going to be like David facing Goliath. Can you imagine? And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. But what's it going to take? What will it require for the Lord to march on behalf of Jerusalem in this way? Now, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Now, this is a, a unique role of God the Holy Spirit, different than what he does today. But it's um, the, the common grace of how God the Holy Spirit works in the heart of somebody before they're saved or before they can understand something. Okay? It's a spirit of grace and of supplication. So that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Israel has to come to a recognition that the Messiah they're waiting for is the Messiah they crucified the first time he arrived. They have to be come face to face with that. They've got to accept that they crucified their Messiah in his first advent. And as uh, they will mourn, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. This is what it will take for Israel's repentance. It will require their recognition that they crucified their Messiah. In that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadrimon, Hadrimon, in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, their wives by themselves. In other words, it becomes an individual family worship procedure here. <clears throat> Matthew 23 Matthew 23. See, there came a point in the ministry of Jesus Christ where he quit preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He also started ordering silence. He would cast out demons and order people, don't testify about me, don't testify about me. All right? There came a transition, there came a point where Jesus understood that Israel had rejected him, that there would, not, there would be a second advent that he would be crucified and return to his father without bringing in the kingdom. And he, and he reaches this point, and he starts pronouncing woes. Matthew 23, 37 through 39. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling 
God works out his sovereign plan, but he works out his sovereign plan through the agency of our response, our volition. You are unwilling. So what does he do? Does he course their volition? Does he make them willing? All right. He brings about the circumstances in tribulation where they will be willing, where they will mourn, where they will repent, where they will sorrow, where they will grieve, where they will seek him, where they will ask for him, knowing what they're asking for. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. The Davidic throne has been vacant since the days of Nebuchadnezzar, and it is going to remain vacant. Your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, and they've got to quote Psalm 118 here, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They have to respond to Psalm 118, truly, completely, 100% knowing that they've already crucified him. They've got to embrace Psalm 118 with the full repentance of knowing that they have already crucified their Savior. And so, let's look at that. Psalm 118, 22 through 25. He cannot come in second advent until Israel is prepared for him. That's why a repentance message must be preached. A repentance message will be preached in the tribulation. Psalm 118. (coughs) Verses 22 through 25. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The builders rejected. Okay. It's like in Zechariah. They will look upon me whom they have pierced. You know, with hindsight, we can look back at these prophecies and realize God knew that they were going to reject their Messiah at first advent. Still, he came and he offered. Um, This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. Here's our Hosanna. And on Monday, March 30th, 33 A.D., when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Catholics call it Palm Sunday. I call it Palm Monday. All right. When uh, Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it was only the children that were singing Hosanna. And all the religious leaders were saying, make them shut up, make them shut up. And Jesus said, I tell you, if you shut them up, the stones will start shouting it out. Scripture is fulfilled. Scripture must be fulfilled. But because Israel as a nation has rejected their king, he, uh, he cannot come back in second advent until Israel shouts, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. It's a second advent prayer. They need to be saved and they need to be prosperous in the millennial kingdom. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. All right, they have to say this. And they have to say this knowing that the Yahweh they're calling upon to come save them is the Yahweh they put on the cross. It's the Yahweh they rejected. Israel today is not there yet. There are Jewish people in the land today, but they're not there yet. They're not there in repentance. They're not there in faith. They're there in unbelief.
Isaiah prophesies that as well. All right. Now, point three. The ascension and session of Jesus Christ means his passion and resurrection must be proclaimed by faithful witnesses here on earth. Part of the witness message, the witness ministry, the need for witnesses. You need witnesses when you yourself aren't on hand to testify. A martus is a witness. The ascension and session of Jesus Christ means his passion and resurrection must be proclaimed by faithful witnesses here on earth. He's no longer here bodily. He's no longer here walking in an earthly ministry. That's why He has us. We're His witnesses. Starting with the apostles, the church has a witness function. We bear witness to the death and resurrection of Christ. So too will the tribulational saints bear witness to the death and resurrection of Christ. We bear witness in the proclamation of the gospel unto eternal life. Tribulational evangelists will bear witness in the proclamation of repentance as the kingdom approaches. So this is a great ministry in tandem with the Old Testament prophetic message. Again, Luke 24, 48. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached. Will be. Future tense. Repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations. And now in First Advent, when John the Baptist was preaching repentance, was he preaching to all the nations? No, he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. How about when Jesus was preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Was he preaching to all the nations? No, he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But in Second Advent... In Second Advent, when repentance is being preached, notice, it'll be in His name, the name of the crucified and risen Savior, to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. That's why the testimony of the tribulational martyrs is so powerful. Why it's the impact in Revelation is that they are martyrs that are under the altar. They are martyrs that are proclaiming the, uh, the good news even in the face of of Antichrist and hell on earth. So the ascension and session of Jesus Christ means his passion and resurrection must be proclaimed by faithful witnesses here on earth. Remember, martus means witness. And if you hold your witness, even under threat of death, you may even die for your faith. It's not your execution that makes you a martyr. It is your faithfulness to bear witness that makes you a martyr. Your execution guarantees that uh, (laughs) your witness is not forsaken. Because up until the point where they kill you, then you can still chicken out. You can still walk away from the faith. You can still deny him. The event of your execution uh, rescues you from that temptation. And you will not deny your Lord. So it's not your execution that makes you a martyr. It is your faithfulness to testify in the crucified and risen Savior that makes you a martyr. We should all be martyrs. Okay? 
Why does Justin, the only guy in church history that gets the last name? Justin Martyr, right? We should all have the same last name. <coughs> all right. So this is a great ministry in tandem, notice now, in tandem with the Old Testament prophetic message. In tandem with the Old Testament prophetic message. The greatest witness you can have, thinking ahead now to the future tribulational evangelist, is taking Old Testament prophecies of what Jesus said would happen and then combining it with your witness of what did happen. And you're putting these together in a tandem. But it comes in phases, okay? The apostles were witnesses to Jesus' passion and resurrection. Time and time and time again we have this in the early chapters of Acts. The apostles were witnesses to Jesus' passion and resurrection. He suffered, he rose again. The scriptures must be fulfilled. He suffered and he rose again. The apostles were witnesses to Jesus' passion and resurrection. The repentance imperative was given. Had the nation done so, could they have kept the the Titus destruction from taking place in 70 AD? Is it possible then that Christ could have descended with the angels and destroyed Rome right then and there? Had the nation repented? Had the nation responded to the apostolic urging? Had they paid attention to the gift of tongues? Could they have repented? All right, well, the fact is they didn't. Wow, how fast can we run through these? Um... Let me just give you the contrast A and B here, and then we'll, we'll look at them. So that was the apostolic witness. But there is coming in the tribulation a tribulational witness. Tribulational witnesses of Jesus' passion and resurrection will precede his second advent. We know this from Isaiah. We know this from Malachi. We know this from the prophecies of the forerunner, the herald. We know this from Matthew 17. We know this from Revelation 11. We know this from Revelation 17. The, the verse we're looking at today in Matthew twenty in Luke twenty four forty eight, it's mainly a tribulational prophecy that will be fulfilled shortly before the second advent of Jesus Christ. Mainly, that's what it is. It's certainly not a great commission imperative to go make disciples. It does not. It is totally improper to connect it to Matthew twenty eight. So let's see how the apostles did this. And then uh, we will also see how tribulational witnesses will do this. So, uh, Acts, real quickly now, let's run through these. Acts 1, 2, 3, 5, 10. Shouldn't take too long. Notice. <coughs> Acts 1, 3. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. That's the setting for Luke 24. And remember, Acts 1 is the parallel to Luke 24. Same author, same recipient. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In fact, ten days after his ascension is when Pentecost begins. Now, when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? That is their focus. The kingdom to Israel. And he said, it's not for you to know the times or epics. All right. But he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Now notice, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even in the remotest parts of the earth, I'm not telling them to make disciples, witnesses. Witnesses. This is not parallel to the Great Commission of Matthew 28. This is parallel to the great cognition of Luke 24 about being a witness. Witness to what? Witness to his death and his resurrection. Witness to his ascension after he's gone. Verse 22 of the same chapter. <clears throat> they figure out, hey, we're still the 11. We need, to, we need the 12. We're supposed to be the 12. And uh, how, how do we replace Judas Iscariot here? As it is written in the book of Moses, or the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, let no one dwell in it, let another man take his office. So there it is, let another man take his office, Psalm 109. Okay? Don't pray that for President Obama. Pray that that was the prayer, that the fulfillment of which was for Judas Iscariot. Therefore, it is necessary that of all the men who have accompanied us all the time, that the Lord went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. One of these must become, notice now, a witness with us of his resurrection. The apostles were witnesses of the resurrection. Just as the tribulational martyrs are going to be witnesses of the resurrection. Chapter 2, verse 32. Again, this is Peter's repentance message. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses there's an apostolic function to be a witness of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 3.15 You, verse 14 says, You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the Prince of Life, the One whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. Again, the role of the apostles were to be witnesses of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's on the basis of faith in his name. All right, so notice it's a repent message in verse 19. Therefore, repent and return. A repent message requires, has a whole new significance with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ being witnessed. In other words, they're getting another chance. They rejected the, the John the Baptist. They rejected Jesus. But now in the early church, after, with the, the, the apostles are witnessing the resurrection and telling Israel to repent. Will they accept their king now? Or will they face national destruction? Okay, Because if they respond, if they repent, if they humble themselves and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, if they bless these apostles coming in the name of the Lord, preaching repentance, then... Uh, the Titus destruction of Jerusalem doesn't have to happen in 70 A.D. All right. Chapter uh, 5 and verse 32. Here again, they're standing before the Sanhedrin. These are the religious leaders. 
Until they repent, until the nation repents, it's, Christ isn't returning. He says, Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God has exalted to his right hand, notice now, as a prince and a savior. Now you want to tell somebody about the savior, tell them to believe. But if you're talking about the coming prince, the prince of peace and the arrival of the kingdom, the message is repent. To grant repentance for, to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. Here it is again. Witnesses preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is the Luke 24 great cognition application. It is not the Matthew 28 great commission application. Acts chapter 10, verses 39, 41, and 43. We start seeing Gentiles here now. Starting in Jerusalem, going to uh, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Here we've got a Gentile in Caesarea. <coughs> Acts 10, verses 39, 41, and 43. He says, uh, verse 38, you know of Jesus, the Nazareth, of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit, with power, how he went about doing good and healing and all were oppressed by the devil. God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. And God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. Two things. God raised him up. But then secondly, granted that he become visible. That's huge. He didn't just raise him up privately and take him to heaven privately. Granted that he become visible. And who did he become visible to? The apostles, his witnesses. That's right. Not to all the people, but to martyrs, witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. All right. Well, there it is. And uh, <clears throat> we can appreciate that. All right. So the apostles were witnesses. But there will likewise in the future be tribulational witnesses of Jesus' passion and resurrection, and they will precede his second advent. Isaiah 40, Malachi 3, Malachi 4. Let's look at these. Isaiah 40. Looking forward to Isaiah. Teaching Isaiah chapter by chapter on Sunday mornings. Once we wrap up Romans. All right. Comfort, oh comfort, my people. What I love about Isaiah is Isaiah is a miniature Bible. You've got 66 chapters of Isaiah, right? 66 books of the Bible. Likewise, you've got 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books. What do we have in Isaiah? 39 chapters of a lot of wrath and judgment and things and then starting in chapter 40 what do we have what are the final 27 chapters of isaiah like 
How does chapter 40 begin? Chapter 40 begins with comfort. Oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended. Well, I'd like to claim that today, wouldn't they? All right. That her iniquity has been removed. That she has received of the Lord's hand, notice now, double for all her sin. You think Israel's been judged already? Wait until the double portion discipline starts getting handed out. The great tribulation of Israel is the double portion discipline they have to go through. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Remember we saw this reference with the ministry of John the Baptist in his first advent. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Were there significant geographical changes in Jerusalem at first advent? There will be second advent. That's absolutely true. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Did that happen first advent? Second advent will have its full fulfillment. Remember Jesus taught the disciples all things written about me must be fulfilled. Malachi 3.1 What I love about Malachi is his name is my messenger. And so Malachi, my messenger, is the prophet that God uses to talk about my messenger. Isn't that great? Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, Malachi. Anyway, behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, who is my messenger? Who is the messenger of the covenant? Who is this forerunner, this herald? Was it John the Baptist in first advent? Or is it Elijah in second advent? And notice, it's going to be pretty tough. Because it says, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. That didn't happen in first advent. It will happen in second advent. The messenger in the tribulation will accomplish this. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. It will take this smelting so that they will repent. It will take the smelting so that they will grieve and mourn. It will take the smelting so they will look upon the Messiah whom they pierced. So that they will repent and say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. He didn't come in first advent for judgment. But it will precede his second advent. Down to chapter 4. Days are coming. The day is coming, burning like a furnace. All right. And uh, you'll note, goodness, I've got three minutes left. Wanted to get to Matthew, wanted to get to Revelation. Obviously, this will have to wait. It's got to wait two weeks. That's horrible. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Lord's in charge. 
The day is coming, burning like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be the chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that I will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, you see why repentance is so necessary in this day? If you're arrogant, you're chaff for the fire. If you repent, there's provision. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. That's why repent is a powerful message that's preached in the tribulation. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I am commanding him, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers. Remember that private household by household worship that Zechariah spoke of? Okay. I will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. If Israel doesn't repent, what might they expect when he comes in second advent? Okay? Anyway, he can't come until they do repent. That's the point. That's why he sends the forerunners. (coughs) All right, well, could have been John the Baptist. If they'd have responded, it would have been John the Baptist. The disciples understood he was talking to them about John the Baptist. But then he says, you know, Elijah is coming. Elijah is coming. Because I say to you, Elijah came and they rejected him. Look what they did to him. Okay? Elijah is coming. Tribulational witnesses will precede his second advent. All right. Well, there's a little bit more. Almost got through it. There's a C and a D. And then there's a point four with an A and a B. So um, we'll have to uh, wrap this up in two weeks, Lord willing and uh, rapture pending. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for your faithfulness. Open the eyes of our understanding. Let us, let us uh, understand what the Great Commission is so we can apply it and what the Great Cognition is, Father, so we don't misapply it. Open our eyes to see what our role is as we proclaim the kingdom, as we preach the gospel. And I thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.